This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to FreightWaves 3PL Summit. I'm JP Hampstead, strategic analyst here at FreightWaves, and I'm here with Chris Wofford, managing partner of Wofford Advisors um, and a specialist in mergers and acquisitions, especially in um, the 3PL world. Chris, welcome. Thank you, JP. Great to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, why don't we just jump right into it? And um, with that, can we get a sense of where seller and buyer sentiment is in the market right now? How do owners of 3PLs um, feel about uh, you know, the, the value of their companies right now? And how do potential buyers of 3PLs, um, how are they assessing these businesses right now? Sure, JP. Thanks for the question. Um Look, I think that uh, we've come through an incredible wave with COVID, obviously really dire circumstances turning into really boom times. And uh, from my perspective, having done this for 30 years as an investment banker at a bunch of large firms and now out of my own, um, this is one of the hottest markets that we've seen for selling 3PLs in really in in recent memory. Uh, Now, with that said, we obviously have some headwinds that we're experiencing um, as we, we are here at the beginning of 2022 that we all are aware of. And inflation, obviously what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and just sort of geopolitics broadly. And, and those issues absolutely manifest um, in, in business models, right? The certainty of cash flows, the certainty of entrance and exit, certainty of closing um, when deals can be subject to CFIUS review and, and things of that nature. But I think I think the the real the real issue that that buyers and sellers are struggling through the most right now is how much of a COVID bump did business models experience, and how much of those supply demand shifts or changes in behavior are here to stay. Are are, um, are people using like like two year kind of like stacked comparables to try to even out some of that noise? What are some of the the sort of the, the strategies that people are looking at to um, get to numbers that, that makes sense for both parties? Sure. Um, well, look, that's a tricky question because there is some segmentation between B2B and B2C, right? So in the B2C world, we've seen an absolute shift in macro factors uh, and, and they start at the micro level. Um, people being cooped up in their homes has led to you know, a decade of e-com adoption, literally in the six to 12 months time period. And it's really quite sticky now because we're, we're almost two years into it uh, behavior-wise. So I think that that is a bit of a paradigm shift and acceleration, really, of the trends that were anticipated on the e-com side of things. So that that's its own, I think, particular set of circumstances because looking back and taking a, let's say, a three-year average on performance – becomes quite complicated if you're you know, averaging in years when there was not the same COVID adoption. Now, naysayers would say you know, some of these trends are going to taper off. And I, I think I mentioned to you in the pre-interview that the journal was talking about how um, people's cons- consumption patterns have shifted right, from, from, from products to services. I think even with that relatively subtle shift in, in consumer behavior, 
you still have a long-standing trend of e-com adoption, and I think that's going to that's going to be something that we're going to you know be experiencing as we go forward. So I think that that's that's a set of valuation parameters that's a bit different. Um, on the B two B side, obviously there's a huge rush into B two C because it's a growing market. The B two B market's much larger than B two C. But even with that said, um, the question becomes how much of a COVID bump was there to these business models? Truckload brokerage is probably one of the hardest markets right now to get your hands around because there are these fundamental questions going on, including autonomous vehicles and their onset. So I think we're in a really difficult time period for value in companies, and that obviously leads to increased discrepancies between buyer and seller expectations. But for sure, in 2021, we saw an incredibly robust market environment. When you talk about um, gaps between buyers and sellers or a bid-ask spread, I mean, can is there a way in which um, strategic acquirers maybe that are seeing some kind of you know commercial uh, synergy or, or some other kind of um, you know you know tech tech synergy is, is there a way that they can kind of um, build in like like a margin of safety or or get a little bit more comfortable? Um, with these valuations, do they have an advantage here? So look, I think you've got two very different sets of circumstances. For a strategic buyer, you're looking at a um, an acquirer who's trying to think 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years down the pike about what the composition of services and markets, capabilities, technology need to be in order for the long-term um competitiveness and, and, and viability of the business model. So that's a set of, of values that, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would articulate starts bordering on intrinsic value, right? We're going to go buy something that's going to adjust the trajectory of our business model. Um, the, the, the financial buyer is, is really gated in by a number of different circumstances, right? The entry price, the exit, how long the, the duration of their hold period, how long their LPs are expecting them to hold the asset for. Now, we've seen a cycle where uh, sponsors were exiting in two and a half, three years because the growth curve has been really that dramatic. But in this environment, um, strategics, I believe, have a bit of an advantage over sponsors where I would have argued last year it was a bit of the inverse. Uh, the reason for that is that this intrinsic value concept uh, can enable a strategic to pay a multiple that might otherwise look daunting, whereas if a sponsor is mistiming their entry into the marketplace at a time when they're buying peak EBITDA and there's a subsequent trough, they're going to get hurt in that investment. Yeah, that that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, the 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 time horizon and the timing in general of of the the uh, financial sponsors are you know so much different than, for example, and I'll I'll just throw this example out there like. ArcBest buying Molo, we know, you know, anyone who's looked at ArcBest understands why they really want to diversify their revenue into asset life, right? Because of their, you know, like whatever you want to call it, their asset exposure, their team source exposure. Like it's it's a clearly like a strategic thing that they've been thinking about for, for many years. You know, you can look at the previous acquisition of bear transportation or something like that. So like, to me, like, that's a good example of, of um, that sort of longer term intrinsic value approach. Absolutely. Look, I think that there are a number of players who are trying to move out of the box that they're in. Um, Maersk, for example, who's been a prolific acquirer in this cycle, 
really suffered through a, you know, a terribly difficult period, right? The container shipping companies were all sort of teetering on the brink. There was massive oversupply, rates fell, freight uh, in certain periods was at, you know, uh, near-term lows. And so if you're sitting there and you've got a, a, bunch, a bunch of, you know, I, I've called them floating hotels in the past where the rate environment goes down, you're really suffering. Now, that's completely reversed in the current environment. But if you're sitting there at Maersk and you're saying, well, how do I make sure that it's not to, you know, that the supply demand imbalance doesn't hurt me again, but also how do I make sure that I don't get disintermediated by all the other 3PLs that are out there who are reselling my services? That's led to a strategy that absolutely is focused on lengthening and broadening the range of services. And in fact, even I would say even deepening because um, Maersk is trying to uh, you know, climb into the enterprise value solution set in the IP stack. So you know, that's, a, that's, that's all about owning the customer and making sure that your one segment of the supply chain doesn't get um, commoditized and, and then repriced by others. Yeah, that's, that, that's really interesting. It, it makes a ton of sense, um, especially for the container ship lines who have historically not been focused on, on customer service uh, you know, because they didn't have to be. But now that now you know, they both have a lot of extra cash to deploy, but they also have like big questions about like, you know, what is the most valuable work I can be doing for my customer? Sure, I get like the same the same held true for the post offices, right? Um, people, uh, different postal services were staring into declining regular way uh, postal volumes, and so what did they do? They went on diversification strategies. I did a lot of work for TNT um, fifteen years ago on the fact that they rolled up uh, the warehouse logistics space, and they were trying to go down the, the path of adding growth to their profile. In that instance, it wasn't as successful as they would have liked, but DHL, you know, buying Excel, right? These are, these are trajectory shifting pitney bows buying logistics. These are trajectory shifting um, strategies that management teams are embracing. So I think there is, you know, absolutely, you know, this issue about, about uh, you know, getting disintermediated is a real one. And you see it in many strategies across the global supply chain. Since we've uh, started getting into, um, you know, commentary on specific deals, Chris, I should just ask you, uh, what's the most interesting deal that uh, you guys have put together recently? And then what's the most interesting deal you've seen out in the market that uh, you guys weren't necessarily a part of? Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. Um, you know, this has been really exciting for me. I, I, I worked 30 years at major banks, Bear Stearns, B of A, Macquarie, Wells Fargo, and went out on my own in early 2021. And we've had a real um, spate of um, M&A successes um, rolling into 2022. So uh, couldn't be more excited. We did almost a billion dollars worth of transaction volume last year. The one that I'm probably the most um, excited about is representing Ryder on buying Whiplash, which is their e-commerce platform acquisition. That was a deal just under $500 million, um, in enterprise value. And what that did is that enabled Ryder to accelerate their e-commerce footprint, which was was moving along, but wasn't moving along at the pace they wanted. And, um, you know, Jeff Walpov and, and, and Greg Morello are, you know, really strong management team, which gave Steve Sensing, the head of SCS, the opportunity to take his own e-commerce footprint and tuck it in under the Whiplash team. So you've got a newly invigorated management team with a newly expanded range of services that is going to bring a lot of change for Ryder. And, you know, one of the things that we, um, you know, we want to just note is that that, that Whiplash acquisition that the old Port Logistics Group did, right, because this was Port Logistics Group before it was Whiplash, 
um, brought a technology base that was transformative for um, what became the combined whiplash uh, business. It brought in the whole e-sellers market and an acceleration. We talked about curves, an acceleration of the growth curve for um, for Port Logistics Group that became renamed Whiplash. So I, I think that one's really exciting. It enables Ryder to service customers all over the country in, in 48 hours time, and it'll be transformational for them. And then um, a deal that uh, Wofford Advisors wasn't part of. Well, um, you know, we competed uh, hard on, on MERS' acquisition of visible supply chain. Um, I think that that's a, a really strong management team. Um, you know, hats off to Jared and Casey. They're terrific operators and they're bringing a special formula to, to, to MERSC. Um, I think that, that that penetration into the parcel market and um, also the B2B <coughs> penetration um, it just brings a whole uh, ex- expansion of the tools um, to Merck. That you know, they they did a great job buying uh, performance team. Uh, you know, Craig Kaplan's a great operator, but that was only a limited piece of the the B two C um, landscape. And now with Visible, I think they've got a much more robust uh, um, service set. It's so interesting to to see these deals that, um, to me, you know, are, are pretty ambitious and creative. Um, I, I think I first used those two words to describe an M&A deal. Uh, I, think, I think it was um, Uber Freight's acquisition of Transplace. I was like, wow, this is you know, not what I expected. Uh, very interesting. Um, lots of potential synergies. But, but ultimately, just like, you know, it's, it's very different than Uber taking an equity stake in some other ride-hailing app or Uber freight buying and not, you know, buying um, a different digital freight brokerage, right? Um, and I kept, I kept returning to that theme of, you know, whether it's bankers, whether it's corporate development people on the buy side, um, you know, having, seemingly having like a little bit more vision about, about um, the way that these services can be combined and the way that, um, you know, they may come together to, you know, so that, you know, one plus one equals three for the customer and, and they can, they can you know, do a lot more for them and grow with their customers a lot more. Um, and my question for you, Chris, is, is this willingness to entertain, you know, multimodal mergers or, 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 or cross-modal mergers, however you want to define it, um, is that being driven just by, capital that needs to be deployed and people need to buy companies and so they're forced to be creative or do you think that um we're really living through a a time when logistics companies are willing to kind of reimagine themselves and you know maybe they don't know what they're going to look like 10 years from now and you know i use the 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 i'm a big believer in in learning by analogy right we've seen a lot of industries um, move to a barbell type structure. And I think that that's fundamentally what's going on here, right? There was a time when specialization was really rewarded by the equity markets. So, you know, migrating off of four years core capability set 10 or 15 years ago would have been a mistake or hubs core capability set. And what we've seen with time is that those business models, and I'm not picking on those two companies in particular, but the specialization has become too broadening. Now, why is that? Because It's because of what we talked about earlier, which is capitalizing on the customer relationship, right? If, the, if you think about the hardest thing to obtain, it's the opportunity to sell to that customer with a viable solution set. 
And unquestionably, we'll see increased bundling. Uh, I worked for UPS many, many years ago when they bought overnight. And um, they'd since exited overnight. But at the time, that was a critical part of the bundle, right? They wanted to be able to sweep the docks for their customers and not have any uh, products that be, um, you know, uncovered by their, their range of services. That was back when they did the, the 100 weight program, which had not been very successful for them. Um, but this, this migration away from specialization towards, and I'm not saying that in every case, right? There's some really cool businesses like Rocket Cargo that we could talk about that maintain their specialization. But what we're seeing is, is to own that customer relationship, you need to do more end-to-end and deeper. And so you talked about TransPlace and you know, Uber Freight buying TransPlace. Well, you know, that, that brought a whole bunch of things to, to Uber Freight, um, the penetration into the enterprise value solution, along with real you know, the fundamental deepening and broadening of their truckload brokers network and the, the cross-selling of the TMS platform. So I think this, this issue of end-to-end networks broadening and deepening um, is going on, and that's going to lead to um, the increased, uh, you know, call it the, 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 the supermarket and the specialty store. And I think the place you don't want to be is stuck in the middle, which is much like what happened in the investment banking world, which, uh, you know, which I grew up in. So how do you how do you interpret, for example, um, the divestment of XPO and, and GXO, right? In that in that context, right? You have Brad Jacobs, like the quintessential uh, you know bundler uh, M and A guy, builds up these huge conglomerates. You know, then he's you know re- reading the paper and he sees Old, old Dominion's uh, valuation and is like, hey, wait a minute, um, you know. Am I actually, is my business actually being, you know, is, is it getting the full value of the market? I, I bring that up because it's the only real uh, counterexample I can think of to the this sort of larger bundling trend. And I just wonder um, what you make of that. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, you know, hats off to the Cognitons on one of the great success stories in the transportation space. I've known, you know, Earl and David for forever. And I mean, just what an amazing story. But, you know, their operations are also... Uh, in most cases, of uh, you know, at least two stair steps ahead of the of the pack. Yeah, they're they're special. They're a special company. But but to your point, um, look, I you know, I respect Brad immensely, and he is a very financially um, driven um, in, and along with being visionary. I mean, what he what he put together um, in terms of the capability set is absolutely consistent with what I was just saying. He just started it, you know, ten years, whatever it was, eight or ten years ago. But I think. I think if the sum of the parts had been um, creating an appropriate valuation, I don't think I don't think that XPO would have spun off GXO. Now, it's important to remember that the Norbear acquisition was a really critical um, doubling or tripling down on trucking. Hidden within Norbear, I, mean, I shouldn't say hidden, but within Norbear was also a very good warehouse logistics business. Um, they bought the Jacobson. Um, companies. In fact, I advised on Norbear buying Jacobson, um, which put them into the U.S. market in chemicals and CPG. Um, there was a very good warehouse logistics business in there. So, um, you know, by by acquiring uh, Norbear, the pro forma pie chart of what uh, XPO looked like was very heavily on the trucking side. And I think um, the LTL, the Conway, the old Conway has had some operating struggles and the Norbear footprint was not the deepest margin profile business. So, you know, putting, um, putting warehouses, I mean, there was never, you know, it's a fascinating question actually, because there was never a pure play um, B2B 
or B2C warehousing company. And the question always was, well, does that trade at eight to 10 or does it trade better? And uh, what I think GXO under Malcolm's um, leadership has done is it's expanded into e-commerce and so added a growth vehicle that doesn't get lost in the entirety of, of XPO. Now, it makes the story a little bit easier to tell. Makes the story easier to tell, right? We're pure play B2B, B2C, um, warehouse logistics and some ancillary services. And then you've got the mother, you know, what used to be the mothership. I just think there's some operational issues that need to get worked out, at least from the data that that I've seen. Um, but look, XPO as it stands today is still a really interesting array of companies. So I, I take your point, which is that it cuts against my thesis, but the thesis has to be predicated on all the cross-selling working and creating synergies across all those business units. Definitely. Um, Chris, last question. Um, what's your... What's your number one piece of advice for um, owners of 3PLs who may be considering uh, selling them? Well, my number, this is self-service, self-serving, but my number one piece of advice is don't try to do it on your own because there's a whole lot of people who don't cost all that much money who are going to walk you through it and help you uh, get the outcome you want. That sometimes is value maximization. Sometimes it's other things like I want the, the brand name of the company I created to stay on the door or the side of the truck. Or, you know, I've got children or siblings who are in the business and the way they get treated in terms of an ongoing role or their economics really matters to me, right? So it's not as simple as just dollars and cents. Um, but again, that's a self-serving answer. Um, look, I think that, that the most important thing right now is you get really good valuation advice so that you're thinking through those issues about, you know, did I have a, a COVID bump? What does the future look like? And if everything is just a, you know, hey, it's all rosy sailing in your forecast, it's very likely that's going to get pressure tested extensively by buyers. So you got to be prepared to defend your case. And again, generally speaking, that's going to be falling back on folks like my team um, in order to help you have all the answers and be prepared for those tough questions. Great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us and um, stay tuned for more action from our 3PL Summit. Great to be here.